But if you open with me to the letter of 2 Corinthians and turn all the way to chapter 13, we're going to look at those last few verses together. Verses 7 through the end of the letter. We have uh, been on a pretty lengthy journey through this letter all the way back uh, in April. Right after Easter is when we started. And, and Dom got us out of the gate uh, in April, May, and June. He, he preached a series of messages on chapters 2 through 7 in 2 Corinthians. I picked things up uh, midway through July and have, have sort of been moving us steadily toward the end of the letter. And I don't have, have time to, to summarize in detail all of that, that ground that's been covered, except to say this, that our, our focus throughout this study of 2 Corinthians has been on this idea of being a resurrection people. What does it mean for our lives, for our relationships, for our expectations, for our attitudes, to be shaped by this conviction that Jesus is really alive? That the, the message that we proclaim on Easter Sunday is in fact true, that Jesus has defeated sin and death, that he has been raised to the right hand of the Father, but that also he's poured out his spirit so that his life lives in us, resides in us. That makes us a resurrection people. And as Paul said in verse 5 in our passage last week, do we not realize that Christ Jesus is in us, that he lives in us, and that that has massive implications for the life we now live together? So with that in mind, let me uh, invite us to hear Paul's concluding prayer for us as he finishes his letter, that we would become a resurrection people. Let me pray for us as we listen to these words. Lord Jesus, I thank you that the Gospels, the epistles of the New Testament, the, the writings that we have been given are not just a, a historical document, but they are given as a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path that we might live in a new way, that we might be different people, that our lives might be restored and reordered and resurrected. Pray now that these few verses would be used to that end. And Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach them, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to pick up in verse 7 of chapter 13. And you'll notice here, as is Paul's custom, almost all of his letters begin by mentioning Paul's particular prayer requests, what he is praying for the life of the people he's writing to. And then he usually circles back to those things at the end of his letter. And so we, we see a couple of those prayer wishes in these verses. He says, so now we pray to God. We pray to God that you in Corinth will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may, have seemed, we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, 
We can only do that which is for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent. So that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not for tearing you down. Paul comes back to a couple of prayers here at the end of his letter. And the first one you see in verse 7 there is a prayer that there would be no wrong found in Corinth. Nothing offensive, nothing inconsistent or incongruent with the gospel of Jesus waiting for him when he comes to visit them. That there'll be no need for him to to use his authority to have to correct and, and reprove or rebuke them when he comes. Paul's writing in the hopes that they will take it upon themselves to to ask Jesus to begin renewing and correcting and reshaping them. Last week in our our passage, Paul stated his his expectations and he expressed a concern that, that when he comes, he might find things disordered. That he might find the people of Corinth still at enmity with each other and still expressing their own Freedom in in ways that are harmful to themselves and inconsistent with the the way of Jesus. And so he he urged them, test yourselves, examine yourselves, so that when I come, as he prays here, I will not see that anything is wrong among you. We We can sense the gentleness of Paul. Paul does not delight in confrontation. He's he's not the kind of leader that likes to storm around a room and put people in their place. In fact, quite quite to the contrary. The great preacher John Chrysostom said in his sermon on this passage, Who is there like Paul? A man who was despised, spat upon, ridiculed, mocked as mean and contemptible and accused of being a braggart by these Corinthians. But although he has every reason to make a show of his power among them, he puts it off and prays it will not be necessary. Paul is praying that when he comes, he will find no evil, but in fact find that there is goodness and life and righteousness at work. In verse 8, he says that, that he cannot, literally he has No power when he comes among them except to do that which is in accordance with the truth. So if he comes and he finds that they are still tearing each other apart, then then he will have no choice but to use his power to confront that sin. But he says, I would so much the rather use my power now to write to you, to plead with you, to urge you, to examine and correct yourselves, to make yourselves strong with the truth of the gospel of Jesus yourself. So that when I come, he says in verse 9, I might find that you are fully restored. 
It's the second and maybe the, the fuller prayer Paul has for the Corinthians. Our prayer is that you may be fully restored. That there would be so much that is right among them as a people. Last week, I was standing by the back door, as I usually do after the service, and Hans Kinset was, was standing there with me, and he sort of looked over his shoulder at the doors, and he did a double take, and he said, are those new doors? Right? JCC is not a place where we usually see new things, right? It's a historic place with all this, this stuff that's been around for centuries. And I said, well, sort of. They're not new doors, but they are newly restored doors. And most of you are probably aware that in the spring and over the summer months, our church hired someone to, to do a, a restoration project on the front entrance. If you can remember back to many of the last winters, if you stood by that door, even with the doors closed, you could feel the wind blow through the doors. You could even sort of see out of the doors when they were closed. There were cracks in them. But those doors out there, they are actually the same doors that have always been there. It's just that they have been now fully restored. Right? They've been weatherproof. They've been insulated. They've been refitted. They've been painted. Right? You name it, it was, it was done over the past three or four months. And that restoration work, you could ask the Prudential Committee, isn't cheap. Right? It, it's labor intensive. It's time intensive. You can't buy those kind of doors uh, in stock at Lowe's. But if, if the original design matters to you, if it's a value to you, then restoration is your only option. And that's what Paul is praying for here, for the Corinthians, but I think also for us as God's people. If you look at the word Paul is using here, he's using a word that, that means instead of abandoning that which is broken, it means returning it to its original state. In Greek, uh, this word was sometimes used for doctors restoring and setting a broken bone into its proper position. It was a, a verb that could be used of politicians who, who took a, a war zone, a, a, an area where there was conflict and, and, and violence, and they restored it to a, a time of peace, right? restored it to its former state. And now Paul, as a preacher, is using this word in a new way. And he's talking about the restoration work of, of taking divided hearts and turning them back toward the love and the life of God. And Paul knows that is costly, time-consuming, painstaking work. But it's what Paul has devoted his life to, his ministry to, and it, it's his ultimate prayer for the people of Corinth, that they would be fully restored. So what is a restored life? What does a restored community look like? Well, I think it's about a reordering and a reshaping of things. Dom mentioned on several occasions in his series this spring 
about how sin has this ability to misshape or, or malform us as people. And, and throughout the Christian tradition, there's a phrase that we've used. We've, we talk about the, the curvature of sin, that sin curves us inward, in upon ourselves. And the result of, of that is we end up with a version of our humanity, a version of reality that elevates ourself as of utmost importance. And when we do that, the people that surround us, the, the creational gifts that God has given us, become means to our own ends, right? We use them, we manipulate them to get what we want. And if we even acknowledge God's existence, it's usually sort of tacked on at the end as a way to, to sanction the plans and the desires we've, we've already committed ourselves to. That's our condition before resurrection. That's our condition before restoration, right? We're curved in. But to be fully restored like Paul prays here is for all of that to be turned back on its head. To be turned away from the worship of ourselves and back toward the worship of a living God. Not curved inward, but curved upward would be the, the restoration work of God. And when God begins to, to restore that place of, of worship as a priority, right, then it also restores to us the, the rest of reality. It restores the relationship we have with each other. We're no longer means to an end, but you actually matter to me because you are God's creation. You are a bearer of his image. He lives in you. So I don't use you, but I love you. I value you. The creation God has made, we don't value it merely as an instrument to get what we want. It also is something made by God, and we value it as a gift from him to us. And finally, we recover a proper sense of identity and self. As one who, who's loved by God and in whom Christ lives. But like Christ, we can live with a, a God-focused, other-centered, cross-shaped, resurrection life in us. This is what, what Jesus came to accomplish, right? The work of full restoration. And so if restoration is what, what Paul has been driving toward and praying for throughout this whole letter, in the last few lines then he summarizes how it is we participate in that work of restoration. What do we do? That's Paul's prayer. How do we live into it? Look at verses 11 through 14. It says, so finally, brothers and sisters, Rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings to you. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is Paul's parting note. 
It's like if you go to a, a concert, right? All the, the best concerts, whoever's playing, carefully chooses the final song, the final chorus, right? So that when you leave, you, you carry that music with you. It, it goes with you on the ride home. You're, you're humming it as you go. Paul signals in verse 11 that these are going to be his final notes. This is what he wants us to carry with us. He says, here's, here's the last 13 chapters of this letter rolled into a chorus of just five verbs. You can, you can walk away humming, but you can also walk away living and doing. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, my resurrection verbs for you are be joyful, be restored, be encouraged, be one-minded, be at peace. In the, in the NIV, we've got some extra words for it to make sense in English. In, in Greek, there's just five verbs here in a row. Boom, 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 boom. Do this. Live this way. This is what resurrection life looks like. Number one, be joyful. Rejoice. I find it kind of amazing that a letter which is so much about relational conflict and breakdown and pain is also one where Paul again and again comes back to the idea of joy and gratitude. In fact, the, the Greek word, the root word, which is charis, which can mean joy or gift or gratitude, it shows up more than 30 times in this letter. And if you did a, a search, it comes almost entirely throughout the whole letter. It's sprinkled throughout. I think Paul has discovered, he knows from experience, you can't do the gritty, the exhausting, the hard work of relational restoration if there's not joy throughout it to sustain you. So he commands us here to rejoice. Right? Paul knows if we don't rejoice, we're not going to stay in the game. And maybe that's a word to us. If you sense there is a deeper work of restoration God's doing in you, and particularly that means excavating some hard stuff, some painful stuff, conflict or brokenness, pray that God would arm you with his joy. Pray that he would help you seek and practice joy. Pray that you would know a joy like Paul describes way back in chapter 1 where he says he's learned to rely on the joy that comes from knowing a God who raises the dead to new life. Paul says rejoice. Paul says rejoice and be restored. This is just the, the verbal form of the noun Paul used back in verse 9. His prayer there. The idea is, is basically let God's restoration have its way with you. Let Christ help you put your life back in proper order. Give yourself over to those blueprints. Don't settle for shortcuts. Be restored. Think of, of C.S. Lewis's images in Mere Christianity where he, he says, don't just invite God in to, to fix a few leaky pipes in your soul. Let God renovate every part of you into a, a palace 
into a place that's fitting for God to live in with you. Paul's prayer here is that we would work with God's plan to renovate and to restore us. Rejoice, be restored. Number three, be encouraged. Probably a better translation of this verb is to be exhorted. To have courage, to take heart, basically, Paul says, to listen to everything I've said in this letter and to do something about it. Take my exhortations to heart. Where you need to break with sin, do it. Do something about it. Be decisive. Where you need to show mercy to someone who's hurt you, do it. Take that step forward. Where God has encouraged you to be generous, start practicing. Paul says, be encouraged, be exhorted. Actively listen to and respond to God's corrective word in your life. That will move you toward resurrection. Rejoice, be restored, be encouraged, be one-minded. Literally, the Greek is, is think the same, think together. And I think in our postmodern world of, of diverse viewpoints and convictions, this can sound impossibly naive. But I want us to take seriously what the New Testament says. The New Testament says, you and I, all of us, if we belong to Jesus Christ, we're one body now. And it also says that all of us have been given the one, the singular mind of Christ. And so, yes, there's this beautiful diversity that we are many members. We are many different people and personalities and parts. And that's a good thing. That's on purpose. But the life we share together, this resurrection and restoration life, means that all of those diverse parts need to increasingly agree on the desires Jesus has for us. To seek more and more what his mind is, what his way is, and commit ourselves corporately to that together. If Jesus is of one mind, so are we to be. And that leads to the last of these five verbs. Be at, live in, peace. It's important to, to recognize this is a verb. There's an active component to this. As one commentary puts it, peace is more than just a feeling. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. Right? Peace must be cultivated. Peace takes work especially when, when it means being at peace with each other. And we cultivate peace, I think, by, by learning first what to do when we are unsettled, when we feel anger, when we feel hurt, when we are in conflict. What do we, what do we do ourselves with that? But then peace also means taking a step further to engage with the people we're divided from. In Colossians 3, Paul prays that the peace of Christ would would reign, would rule over us in our hearts because we're of one body now. So Paul concludes with this string of five verbs. And every one of them, right, they invite actions. They invite 
choices from us. Paul's saying you don't just become a resurrection people by accident. You don't fall into this. We have to, to choose with the person and power of Christ to commit ourselves to these things. But as is so often the case in Scripture, God's commands to us come attached with a promise. Paul says, as we rejoice, as we are restored, as we are encouraged, as we are unified, as we live at peace with each other, then the the God of love and peace will be with us. When we choose these things, God chooses to supply us with an abundance of his love and peace. God will be with us, Paul says. It's a promise. It's a certainty. God will be with us in the hard, in the transforming, in the restoring work of resurrection. Verse 12, Paul says, as a a sign that the the love and, and peace of God are present among you, as a sign that you're working this out with all these other messy people that are part of your lives and communities, I want you to greet one another with a kiss of peace. And I'm going to leave it up to you guys to to figure out how to work that one out, how to apply that here at JCC. But this was actually an innovation. This wasn't just Paul pulling in some cultural vestige. This was something most historians believe was, was new in the first century church. People who were not family, people across socioeconomic divides, people of different races, they actually did this with each other. They embraced one another. They acknowledged that they belonged to each other in this way. And then in verse 14, Paul finishes with with the benediction, which I think is an expansion on that, that promise we just looked at. The promise of God's love and peace now extends and and invites us into the full triune presence of God. May the grace of Jesus, may the love of God the Father, may the, the communion, the community, the drawing together presence of the Holy Spirit, may that be with us all so that we might live into this reality. God's resurrection people.